Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder, a founder that has done it multiple times, you know, and very successfully so. We're talking about several companies that he's built, you know, that are that have been worth, you know, over 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 a billion. You know, think about that. We're going to be talking about building, scaling. We're going to be talking about being contrarian. Also, how to build companies and how to get them started out of a frustration amongst uh, many other things. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ronald Bruce. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Happy to be here. So originally born and raised in the Netherlands. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Growing up was fantastic. You know, it was, a, you know, even when I was a small kid, big soccer fan, the Netherlands were doing excellent in the World Cup. I had a blast. I was in the same school as Ronald Koeman, who later became the coach of uh, Barcelona. I had just a fantastic time. I had two parents that really stimulated me to do high school well. And then I needed to pick a study, and I decided to do medicines in Groningen, which is in the north of the Netherlands. I was a bit like, um, you know, a bit like a nerd. Uh, but I loved studying and I loved windsurfing and, uh, you know, the entire study was just great. And then I decided, basically, I want to become an oncologist. And, uh, you know, at that time, um, there was a lot of uh, people that want to become oncologists and there weren't that many places to start. So I had to wait about two years before I could start. And during those two years, I decided to do something entirely different. And that was work in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, w w one thing that was amazing there is, you know, you decided to um, to really, you know, take some time off, you know, when you were waiting for the oncologist and, you know, industry to kick in. But, you know, as you were alluding to it, you started to work in places like Milan, Munich, New York. And then, you know, you decided that you never wanted to go back. I guess the first thing that comes to mind here is as, as, as being able to live in so many different cities. What? What opened up for you? You know, what kind of worldview, you know, changed there from being in so many different cities around the world working? You know, Alejandro, I, I think it had to do with the fact that I had such a curiosity for how other cultures work, how other people think. And I always wanted to learn. So going to Munich was a blast. Going to Milan and work there was great. Going to New York as a 30-year-old, right? Fantastic. Working in Manhattan. I mean, it was all, I, I, it was like a sponge. I soaked it in. Everything I saw, everything that I could learn from, I loved it. I loved the dynamics. I loved the fast lane, everything. Now, obviously, you know, during this time, too, is the moment where you decide that uh, it's time to take ownership of, of your own destiny. And the first uh, stop there was a company, you know, called Galapagos. So, um, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, I think it was Galapagos, but you tell me what really got you into the venture world. Yeah. Well, actually, we had two kids um, in New York and my wife wanted to go back to Holland. And uh, I was looking for opportunities and to see if there were 
any potential startups that I could join. And there was a little one that was doing genetic therapy that was a spin out of the University of Leiden. And I became interested in it. And especially because when I lived in the States back in the um, late 90s, so I think it was 96 when I first met them, I, I, I saw that they all had, like in the Netherlands, they all had mobile phones. And I didn't have them in New York. And I really wanted to work with a company that had mobile phones and stuff like that. And they were doing something like genetic um, like therapies. And I was interested in that. And I decided to join them. And, um, you know, in a few years, I became the CEO of that company. And during that time, I started another company. It was called Galapagos, actually based on the same technology. And just looking and being not stubborn that a lot of the things that we were doing in the beginning failed. And I was just looking for opportunities to make the technology work. And and that was how we came up with Galapagos. And Galapagos became a big success. Crucell became the largest independent vaccine company in the world. And, um, you know, it was, was a great buzz. Became CEO of the company for seven years. And become the CEO of the year in the Netherlands. All kind of great things. But it just happened in a dream. Everything went so fast. I... I I cannot even recollect what happened during those days and why we were doing so well in the stock market, et cetera, et cetera. It was really a dream. Now, with Galapagos, uh, valued at $16 billion at the peak, uh, with Crucial, uh, it was acquired by J&J for $3.5 billion. You know, really incredible. You know, like everything that you were touching, you know, was turning into a billion-dollar uh, operation. I guess... What were some of the key patterns uh, that you were seeing repeated from one to the other? I think, you know, the most important thing that I've learned during the years of going from big pharma into smaller biotech was that it wasn't really the technology that mattered, but it was very much, um, you know, the management that had to sell the story, um, had to raise money. And the more money you raise, the more likely it is that you're going to turn this into a successful firm. And that is, you know, for me, it was always one of the most important lessons. So whenever people ask me to invest in their company, I, I'm not that curious about their plan. I'm not that curious about their technology. I, I just want to look who's at the helm and why. And when he comes up with a great story and can show that he's capable of attracting great people, I, I might invest. I'm never going to invest in a great technology because I've seen so many fail. And it's always due to the fact that the liquidity position of the company at the end is not good enough. And that's always due to the management. So, you know, this kind of lesson learned you know, also, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that now. Also, always make sure that you raise enough money because it's so important. Another lesson is use things that are against you or big hurdles. Try to use them in your advantage and, and try to be think like no one else. Try to create a company that no one else has created. Don't try to mimic. Don't try to, you know, do something that someone else already had done. 
I always try to do something different. So create a different culture in your company, create a kind of a, you know, you know, go after a target that no one else is going after. Because ultimately, you know, you need to be alone in a certain segment to be very successful. So, so then in this case for you too, talking about being successful as well on the acquisition side, you know, going through an acquisition and getting the company acquired by J&J for $3.5 billion is, a, is quite an achievement too. What, how does an acquisition like that, you know, really come together and, and what did you learn, you know, from the deal-making side when it comes to reaching the finish line with a business? Yeah, well, actually, um, <clears throat> I knew that, that Johnson & Johnson wanted to get into infectious diseases and we had a vaccine company. But basically, I felt that the, um, the culture of J&J was so much different then from our entrepreneurial crucial that I said, basically to the management of, of, of Johnson Johnson, let's talk one more time about this and I will give you a presentation about our culture. And I gave them a presentation that was called Red Monkey. And, and actually, the idea of it was that red monkeys are different species than brown monkeys. And the brown monkeys are the large corporations, and they want to be like a red monkey, but they never become one, right? And red monkeys always have a different, they always have fun, they live close to the sea. And I was just, you know, telling them that, you know, Crucell is a red monkey company, you guys are brown monkeys. And that is, has nothing to do with, um, you know, that a judgment or something like that. It's just, you know, how I see the world. And then I learned afterwards, after the presentation, that they started a project, Red Monkey, and they wanted to acquire us just because of the fact that we were so different. But I also warned them that, you know, the ultimate aim of the brown monkeys is to destroy red monkeys. And, you know, so it, it, it was, you know, I couldn't live in that environment anymore. So when they acquired us, I stayed one year on, on, you know, on board, and then I had to go because it, it became too brown monkey. Um, now, I, I know that part of uh, that transition, too, you know, is a moment where you ultimately decided that you were not really satisfied with uh, drug development. And uh, that was a time that it was also unfortunate because you received the news that your father, you know, was a, you know, uh, diagnosed with lung cancer. How would you say that that changed the course of everything for you? Yeah, I actually was still at the helm of, of Crucell. We just sold it to um, J&J. And then my dad came to me and he said, you know, I need to tell you something. Um, I got lung cancer and they cannot cure it. So I'm going to die. I have very good friends in my board that were CEOs of, of, let's say, the top 10 pharma corporations in the world. And they said, Ron, well, you know, we have stuff in our pipeline. Why don't you try that on your dad? And then I started to realize, well, wow, I'm so blessed that I have those friends. But, you know, there must be millions of other patients that don't have those friends and they cannot try these new drugs. So although I will accept gratefully their offer, I also need to work on something that other patients could use drugs as well. And another fascinating thing was that I started to ask these guys, well, 
if my dad would be on the drug, would you guys be interested how he's doing? And he said, no, we cannot use that kind of data because that's real world. That's, that's, that's not control. And I was just thinking, wow, that's interesting because I would love to give it to my dad, but I would also be very much interested if I would be a pharmaceutical CEO or what comes out of if I give this to thousand random people that have that disease, are they going to be cured or how's that going? And therefore, out of frustration that something like that didn't exist, I, I started my tomorrows. A company, this is basically um, a two-sided marketplace where patients and physicians on one side come together and we match those with drugs in development. So then, so then what happened next? Well, what happens then is the, 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 the computer matches these, these patients immediately with a drug in development. And then the first question is, is this person, this subject, this patient, is that one going to go in a clinical trial? And that would be a preferred route. But most of the time, 95% of the time, it's not possible. And the reason why it's not possible is, for example, with very simple geographical reason. The trial is only running and recruiting patients in the United States of America. This patient is in Berlin or this patient is in Paris and cannot be part of that trial. It could also be that the trial is only in Berlin and none of the American patients can be part of such a trial, but they all would love to. And for those we trying to create something else is getting treated outside of the clinical trial. And also, we do that for free. So the patient and the doctors, they don't need to pay. But we would love to have the data afterwards. So then, so then for this company now, you know, which is saying, as you were alluding to, you know, what end up becoming my tomorrow's. Uh, you guys have also, you know, raised a tiny bit of money, you know, obviously after the um, all the successes that you had, you know, before with all these companies, you know, exits. Why did you decide to raise money from external investors? Um, well, there's a couple of I think that's an, also a lesson that I've learned. If you as the CEO that I became for this company are also the one who's investing most of your uh, of the, uh, let's say, the lion's share of the money that's been used. Whenever, you know, there is a little bit of a dip or it doesn't go as wanted or it takes longer, they all look at you to take the first step to, to fund you know, some money again over and to wire some money to the company and then all the others will follow. I didn't like that kind of thing. So I really wanted to have some professional investors in the company to do basically keep a very uh, way larger share as in the other buy the companies but you know wanted to make sure that i was doing the right thing hey guys so pardon the interruption here so i gotta tell you that you know for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired you don't have to be alone you know there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy with methodology with process and it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then, so then now, you know, for my tomorrows, if I was to, let's say, tell you that you're going to sleep tonight, Ronald, and that you wake up in a world where the vision of my tomorrows is fully realized, what does that world look like? That world looks like that pharmaceutical development for you as a patient is an integrated part of healthcare. So if you cannot be helped with everything that's approved, they help you with something that's not approved and they gather your data. An entirely new world where drugs are meeting patients, you know, years, just a few years after they've been invented, not the traditional 12 years. Right, that you don't need to worry if you're a patient in that kind of circumstances, if you can afford it because you get the drug for free. That we know what drugs are doing in the real world, and that we know why we should reimburse drugs because they do something, they help people in the real world, rather than in an artificial kind of fashion what you normally see as the result of clinical trials that are very well controlled, but there's so much control that you could argue there are no normal patients in that trial being subject to the the drug. So the world will change. Innovation goes quicker. Smaller companies can innovate quicker and can potentially make it to the end because they don't need to spend so much money on, on phase three studies. And the world should be a better place because there's way more innovation going on. Now, for you, you are also have become a part owner of Feyenoord, you know, which is the uh, top uh, club there in, in the Netherlands, uh, soccer club, you know, that we would call it here, football club there in Europe. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting here. I've heard you say that there are similarities between football and biotech. How is that the case? Well, you know, being a biotech entrepreneur, you know that you're looking at molecules and you wonder how will they do in the real world, right? How will they do in the arms of, in the bodies of patients? And actually, it's the same with young players. You know, they're talented, like those molecules. They look if they had that they have the right specs. But then ultimately, the test is how will they perform on the pitch and how good are they compared to their peers? And how fast are they developing? How much money do I need to pour into it to develop them and to keep them for your club? And then ultimately, you know, 
as a smaller club like Feyenoord Rotterdam is. It's it's one of the largest clubs in the Netherlands, but it's still compared to Real Madrid or Paris Saint-Germain or Man United. It's a relatively small club. You know that you have to let these players go because the big guys can afford, you know, to buy them from you. And there's no 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 holding back there. And there you see the deal structures that we do when acquiring these players and selling ultimately these players to these larger organizations or football clubs is so similar to Biotech. We have milestones. We have, you know, we have like payments, yearly payments. We have even something that calls like royalties when when Paris Saint-Germain decides to sell that player to someone else that you get an extra 15%. It's, it's all like biotech molecules. And the interesting day, thing now, it's now finally also all based on data, right? It's no longer, you know, that player has a great head or a funny walk or this, that, and other. No, we have all the data like we have from a molecule. Now, for you, there's never a dull moment. Ronald, because uh, in addition to, the, to this and, you know, to running my tomorrows, you know, you're also involved with other operations like Tested.me or, or Leiden Labs. You know, I mean, even on Leiden Labs, you guys have raised close to 200 million uh, as well. So what are some of these uh, other, other things that you're working on? Yeah. Now, <laughs> Alejandro, Leiden Labs started basically as an observation in, in January 2020, when the first patients with COVID were broadcasted on the television from China, and you saw, and basically me as a physician, the first thing that I noticed, they were all elderly people. And I was just thinking, why are there no kids being, um, you know, infected in such a way that they need to go to the hospital? And then we developed a kind of hypothesis like, hey, Kids have a different immune system. COVID is a new virus, but for kids, every virus is new. So they kill it in a different way. And that was the start of Leiden Laboratories, which is basically a company that gives antibodies and sprays them in the nose as a way of defense mechanism against influenza, COVID, and whatever. And when everyone was focusing on, on COVID, our company, Leiden, decided to focus on influenza instead, because no one was interested at that first half year in 2000 in influenza. So I could buy interesting assets from companies that I needed to create the building blocks for, for Leiden. Uh, we convinced Google, we convinced SoftBank, Fidelity. To, to invest, and, and hence we now have a great company that is creating nose sprays independent of the human immune system that can potentially protect against these diseases. That's amazing. Now, now in your case, you know, I, I know that when you look at starting new companies, uh, and obviously, you know, like the listeners are probably super impressed with, with all the companies that you have been involved with, all the projects that you have going on. When you go about starting those, you always look outside, you know, of the business. You look at things that frustrate you. You look at the, basically the stuff that is not in your day-to-day. -day. 
Why is that the case? And, and how do you go about going from a, frustrating, a frustration to saying, you know what, I'm going to build a company to solve this? Um, yeah, I think the most important thing is that, that the way I look at companies that are successful, they're all built around a story, a story that resonates well and that is logical, a great narrative. When you observe something in the outside world that frustrates you, it's extremely easy to build a great story that you want to change that. And why? Because other people feel that frustration too, right? And that is actually how I start to, 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 to look at opportunities. I can, you know, I can, even when I have to wait in the general petitioner's office, when I have something that I think the general petition needs to see that, and I have to wait, I immediately say, why do I have to wait? Why is that? And can we solve this? And then, you know, you start to think about, hey, the general petitioner is open or the physician, the house physician or whatever you want to call it from from 8.30 to 5 o'clock. But most diseases and most symptoms start after 5 or in the weekend or whatever. And then you start like, hey, it's not only that I need to, 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 to wait here. It's also that when I start to see symptoms, he's not there or she's not there because the office is closed. And then I start to think about, wow, why don't we do this or that? And, you know, with that narrative, that's a narrative when you go to investors, they immediately picked it up because they're the same like you and me, right? They, they, they feel the same frustration. And I think that's the reason why, you know, why, why it's easy to work with a new concept if it starts out of frustration of something that you see in the outside world. And why companies with the most amount of money always win? I don't, you know, this is this is a kind of a, a an interesting kind of concept. I don't know, um, Alejandro, maybe you're from Spain or, but I don't know if this is a game in the United States, but there's a famous game, it's called Risk. And that game is basically with four or five players and you all sit and you all need to have a different task in the world and you have armies and you need to fight and you need to conquer other kind of things. When I was a student, I was playing that game every day. And what I learned was it didn't matter what task you had. The one with most of the armies always did win. And then I started to find it also logical that it applies in, 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 in business. Because the narrative, the, the, you know, the, the, the concept that you're working on, your mission, et cetera, et cetera, if they resonate well, it's a good thing that you're doing it. It's easier for you to, to attract money. You get more money. When you get better people working for you, they make you succeed. That makes this company succeed. So when I invest, it's never on you know how great of an idea it is. It's always like, who's the guy who came up with this and why? And does he look at the world the same way as I do? Do I feel that this story is a story that resonates with me? So now, Ronald, I'm going to put you into a time machine, okay? okay. And I'm going to bring you back in time. I'm going to bring you back in time to maybe that moment where you are now, you know, taking a look at maybe starting 
something of your own, maybe, you know, like back in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, and then um, let's say you have an opportunity there to go back in time and to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Ronald. Yeah. And you're able to give that younger Ronald one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that yeah. be and why, given what you know now? I, I think, Alejandro, I think the advice would be be even more curious about what's happening in the world than when you were 30 yourself. I remember I was living in Rowayton in Connecticut, close to Manhattan, at the time I was 30 years old. And my next door neighbor was the head of Saatchi and Saatchi in the United States, right? And we were chatting. I was a young chap. He was a little bit older, but he was extremely successful. And then one day he told me, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to work independent in on something in the internet. You know, Alejandro, I didn't even know what the internet was. I thought the guy was totally crazy. But he had, at his age, even more curiosity than I had. I should have invested immediately and looked like, hey, what is the internet? Why is he doing that, right? I did lack the curiosity at that moment in time. But those are the guys that are changing the world, right? They're making the right moves on the right step because it's all about serendipity. Being there when something happens, right? And act. But if you're not there, you can't act. I love that, Ronald. For the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, you know, I'm first of all, if you sent me um on 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 LinkedIn, you know, something, I always reply. Because like I said, I now know that I need to be curious about everyone. Everyone has a story, and I'm curious about these kind of things. So reach out to me on LinkedIn and it will be or via you. If I give you my phone number, I'm I'm probably the, the wrong people are gonna get. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I hear you. So, so Ronald, I have to say that it has been a tremendous honor to have you on the show today. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for being with us. It really has been a pleasure and an honor to have you with us, Ronald. Thank you. Alejandro, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.